This episode is sponsored by the McCormick Center for Early Childhood Leadership at National Lewis University in Chicago. The center has this slogan, improving outcomes for children one leader at a time. Go to their webpage to find information about them. Just Google McCormick Center for Early Childhood Leadership at National Lewis University. Welcome to the podcast Research in Leadership in Schools, Early Childhood Settings and Social Care Settings. I hope that you are having a good day and that you uh, have been um, satisfied with how you enact your leadership role today. Or if you do research in the area of leadership. In order to uh, enable you to be a better leader or a better researcher in leadership, I will present to you today an interview that I have conducted with a researcher in the area of leadership. Enjoy the interview. So I am here at Northwestern University in uh, yeah outside Chicago and with me is uh, Timothy Dorr. He is an assistant professor and a director in the Master of Science Educational Program here. And uh, first of all, Timothy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here. And we are going to talk about mental health in schools today. And how did it actually start for you, this working with mental health? Well, it's it's both professional and personal. So professionally, I spent uh, 20 three years in uh, K-12 education as a uh, high school English teacher uh, and a department leader, and then eventually five years as principal of a very large high school here in the Chicagoland area. There were 4,000 students in this school, grades 9 through 12. And that led me, especially in the role of principal, but even before that, uh, in my work uh, thinking about the lives of kids and the lives of the adults in our in our schools uh, led me into school climate research and trying to understand uh, how do kids and people feel about being in schools and that research led me to social and emotional learning which in 2000 and you know four five was really becoming a a very hot topic for us here uh, in in this state and uh, so we moved quickly into learning more about social emotional learning and and that led me into a much broader world of mental health and how do we work in our schools to provide support for kids who are dealing with mental health issues how do we deal uh, create support systems for adults who work in schools and their mental health and how do we support parents and I think maybe the bigger picture that I now work with administrators around and teachers around is how do we make sure that we don't um, uh, hurt students and adults in terms of their mental health in schools? I think there's some, some systems that we create in schools and environments that we create in schools that actually can make mental health uh, problems worse. So it's a matter of, of 
trying to think with them about how can we change what we do in schools to be more um, mentally uh, healthy in, in, in everything you do, academically, social, emotionally, and physically. So, so you're actually talking about uh, working with mental health as an early intervention and, and prevention kind of style and not kind of taking the big problems when they have gone too far. Absolutely. I think, I think most of our work up to this point in, you know, in the world has been around uh, being reactive. I think many administrators and teachers feel they're in a reactive phase. And, and what, what I believe and what many of us believe uh, who are doing this work is that if we can invest more time in prevention – and really good intervention and response, um, that, that that's the better way to go. So when we work with schools, we actually have them think quite a bit more about prevention rather than the reactive uh, nature of things. And, and I think when we talk about mental health in uh, the Nordic countries, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Faroe Islands, Iceland, Uh, we will say it's the responsibility of kind of all the teachers and maybe in particular the form teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in England, they will have more kind of like a class in mental health awareness and stuff like that. How is it in America? Uh, that's a, and that's a great question to think about because where we are in America is what we would I would call an additive model where we are trying to create additional time or spaces where for these 15 minutes we're going to work on social emotional learning or for these 15 minutes we're going to work on restorative justice practices and that's better than nothing i always like to start by saying that's great that a school is setting aside a class or setting aside a time to work on this but more and more of the research here is showing that we need to integrate mental health practices, good, sound mental health practices in every moment of every day. So it's a question of how do we make this integrated and um, a a part of the breathing of a school as opposed to, okay, now we're going to stop doing mathematics and now we're going to do you know, restorative justice practices. And now we're going to, okay, we're going to stop writing and we're going to focus on social emotional learning. And so, you know, there's, there's maybe a continuum of, of best practices in this. I think something is better than nothing, but we also want to, if we really want to do this right, we need to think about how do we change our day-to-day practices so that actually mental health is a part of everything that we do every moment of every day. So, okay, you say you work kind of in a more preventive uh, way of, of, of dealing with these issues. And if we maybe sort out the different groups in the school and start with the principals, what is actually for us to be aware of when we are to focus on the mental health of uh, principals? Well, I, I lived that life uh, for, for five years. And let me tell you, it was a challenge uh, to be that person, to have that role, that responsibility. And, and the added responsibility that I believe that uh, principals are ulti- they're, they're ultimately responsible for the climate of the school. And, and they're the, 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 the carriers of culture for that school. So there's a lot on their shoulders on top of their normal duties and everything else they have to do, uh, oftentimes as the instructional leader of the school, as the symbol, as the representative of the school. There's a lot on their, on their shoulders. And what we need to do to really support a principal's mental health is 
to make sure that from the minute they become a principal, that they have a very solid mental health action plan for themselves, what we would call a self-care plan. How are you in this role as principal with how busy you are about to become and the responsibility you are about to feel, how are you gonna take care of yourself? How are you gonna make sure that you are gonna remain healthy and strong through X number of years that you are gonna be in this very important leadership position? We don't oftentimes start there. We want people to hit the ground running. We use that term all the time. We're gonna hit the ground running. And if the hit the ground running is all about work, 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 and all those responsibilities and not about how are you going to take care of yourself, we are going to have more principals burn out. In the United States, uh, the average number of years that a person is in a principal role is in three to four years. Uh, it's very uncommon to find a principal who's doing this for 10 or 15 or 20 years. It's a rough road. And this is at the same time that we have research that's going on here in Chicago that that shows that besides a classroom teacher, the most important person that influences student learning is the principal. Mm -hmm. So we have to make sure that we're taking care of our principals and our other administrators by making sure they have a mental health action plan for themselves, a self-care plan. How are they gonna work that in? So it's time, uh, they need to have downtime, they have need time to think, they need time to uh, continue their relationships with their family members and their friends uh, because we know that relationships are uh, those kinds of, of activities actually restore us and bring us resilience for when we face those hard times. Uh, we need to make sure that physically we're getting enough sleep, we're getting enough to eat and the right foods to eat, and we're getting enough exercise. Those pieces are not always part of the conversation when you sign your name on the contract to become a principal. So how do we make that a part of that initial conversation? And then how do we make sure and how do we ensure that principals actually are doing this work? Otherwise, they are going to be burning out uh, in the same numbers that we see happening with teachers. Uh, and, and we don't want that. We know that when we have a consistent leader at the head of a school for a longer period of time, test scores get better, school climate results are, are more positive. So that consistency is something that we're not seeing right now in certainly in urban school districts and in charter schools. There's a churn that's happening at the top that really has a, a cascading effect on everybody. And, and, and you said that, that the principals, they have a lot on their shoulders. Uh, is, is this also kind of maybe uh, something to do with that we have to make the, the task of the principal more collective, so we need to distribute it or share kind of mm -hmm. the leadership responsibilities more than we have done earlier? Yeah, that's a great way of managing this piece. It's a recognition that I, as the principal, uh, have way too many things on my plate. And, and as a result, I'm feeling overwhelmed. And that's going to affect my, my health uh, in both mental and physical ways. So we are seeing uh, a really wonderful thing happening here in the United States. Um, maybe not for all the right reasons, but uh, sometimes we do uh, the right thing for the wrong reasons. You know, we've had a change in the United States recently, and it really uh, a, a change in the evaluation of our teachers. And principals and other school leaders are doing much more evaluative work. They're in classrooms a lot more. They're needing to do uh, feedback to teachers, and they're having to evaluate them because we've now tied 
teachers' salaries and and those kinds of things to evaluation. And what's changed in the principal's office and, and I think in the school leader uh, world is that they're needing to do more and more of that work. It, that means that there's less time to do some other things. And so what many principals are doing, and it's very wise, is that they're turning to teachers to take on more teacher leadership roles that used to be done by the principal, uh, but they just can't anymore. And so the, the great news is we've seen this really positive change in some of our schools where more teachers are taking on responsibilities uh, which we would call teacher leadership roles of instructional coaches or leading committees uh, or other responsibilities so that the principal has more time to focus on those evaluations. So there has been a recognition that we need to shift some responsibilities off the plate of the, the principal. Now at the same time we're asking the principal to do more evaluations. We're seeing principals in Illinois who are doing 25. Uh, it's very common to see uh, a principal say that they have 25 teachers a year that they have to evaluate maybe two or three times each uh, throughout that year. And when, when you look at the five to 10 hours it takes just to do one observation cycle with a teacher, and you add that up, suddenly we got a lot of hours and a lot of time being invested uh, in doing teacher evaluation and coaching, which is important. Um, so we, we still need to, I think, find ways to push some of that leadership off onto other people to distribute the leadership, as someone like a Jim Spallon would, would talk about uh, as being very important, that when we distribute that leadership, it allows us each to do our jobs better, and it allows us to have space to take care of ourselves. Uh, I'm thinking now that uh, when we talk about mental problems, the, the, uh, the statistics show often that uh, males are more kind of... Uh, receptive towards uh, having mental problems. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but do you think there's a difference between uh, principals who are female and males in this sense? Well, we, there are some gender differences when we talk about mental health and we get into issues like uh, eating disorders, uh, depression, um, uh, suicidal ideation, some of the more severe mental health issues, there are some gender differences. You know, um, girls are more likely to attempt suicide or have depression than boys. Boys are more likely to succeed at a suicidal uh, attempt. Um, girls are more likely to have uh, anorexia nervosa or bulimia, one of the eating disorders. However, you know, boys also have that as well. It's just girls have it a little bit more. Um, so we do see um, you know, certain behaviors changed by gender amongst the general population. Um, it's hard to say. I haven't seen any research that really looks at, you know, leaders in that regard. Um, you know, we do have more men in leadership roles uh, in schools than women, uh, even though there are more women in teaching in the United States. Um, so, you know, we, 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 we need to look at this. We need to see this. Um, but I can't point to any research that's really being very specific on that topic right now. Okay, let's then move on to the teachers. Yes. What shall we do to improve the culture or the environment of mental health for teachers? Yeah. Well, uh, 
again, I think it begins with a recognition on what the life of a teacher really is. And um, I was a you know, language arts teacher for, for, for many, many years. And my school day did never ended at 3 or 3.30. Uh, I always had sets of papers in my bag that I was bringing home with me. I would always spend hours at night and on the weekends uh, grading papers, preparing lessons, uh, doing communications with parents and my colleagues. Uh, and, and I don't think we recognize also the life of our teachers in teacher leadership. Uh, we're actually starting to do some work here uh, to, to study how many teachers are in what we would call teacher leadership positions. So when they're done with their class time, um, uh, you know, they're, they're coming in earlier, they're staying late doing all kinds of things around the school. We, and, and not to mention coaching sports, sponsoring clubs, uh, you know, directing plays and musicals, taking kids on field trips, uh, and all the communications we do with parents. So the life of a, a teacher is full. And uh, again, I don't know if we recognize uh, we oftentimes think, especially here in the United States, oh, they only work from eight to three every day and uh, they have the summers off. You know, they don't work in July and August and uh, part of June. Uh, it's, it's so not true. <laughs> and the narrative we need to start sharing is the 24-7, seven days a week, uh, you know, full year experience that many of our teachers are in, especially, you know, all the ones that are that are super dedicated, and there's a lot of them that are, right? So we we need to start with a recognition of how busy that life is, uh, and 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 you know, realize that that is going to eat into the time that they might have to sleep eat, you know, spend time in relationships, uh, um, uh, to meditate, to relax, um, you know, to, 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 to energize themselves in whatever ways that energize themselves. For some teachers, that's learning more about their craft and learning more about their content area. Um, are we giving teachers that time both during the school day, after the school day, and you know between days and uh i think there's a lot we can do there the the third thing is uh, while how much we pay teachers is really important it's maybe it's either number one or number two in importance the other thing that's important that teachers report all the time is that working conditions in the school is is as important uh, than than the salary, and so when we think about what does it feel like to be a teacher, what, how am I being treated as a teacher? It's everything from um, how do I feel getting to school, how do I feel walking in the door when I'm there, do I have relationships with my colleagues, do I feel supported by my administrators and my parents? Uh, are there things that do I have time to eat? Do I have time? Do I have a few minutes during the day to? Uh, just rest uh, for a couple of minutes and slow down my thinking. Um, we have, we, you know, most of the, we have 81% of our uh, teachers in the United States are white and female. And so the diversity issue is an issue that needs to be addressed, certainly. But let's just talk about gender for a second. Um, many of the women who come into the workforce uh, and teach, as teachers um, uh, want to have children or, or have children. Uh, when they come into a school, if, if I'm a mom who's just uh, given birth and I'm coming back to work, uh, I have nowhere I can go to pump if I need to pump my breast milk. 
I've got nowhere to go. We have bathrooms, we have closets that, that these, uh, these teachers are going into in order to pump. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. So if I'm that teacher, do I want to do that? No, I'm probably going to quit. I'm probably going to stay out of the teaching force, and I could be a fantastic teacher. So it's just little things like that that, again, I think is the responsible, responsibility of the administrators, responsibility of the teachers' unions, uh, the responsibilities of parents to think about uh, that life of the teacher both in school and out of school and how do we create the conditions that are humane beginning at the bottom level are they humane to are they um enjoyable is it something that makes me want to come to work and be positive um i think those are to me those are two big ones the third the third big one is is uh competency do i feel competent in the work that i'm doing and if i feel competent in the work i'm doing i'm going to feel more positive uh i'm going to feel like uh, i'm coming to school with an energy and i'm going to maybe take care of myself and my kids a little bit better and so the more we do to remember that um, teaching and learning is constantly changing we don't learn it all in our teacher preparation programs this is a, a 35 to 40 year commitment that we all need to be making to a teacher who needs to grow and change year by year by year by year and so we need to make sure that we're giving them the skills they need when it's a new piece of software that comes in it's a new teaching approach uh, you know we need to be giving them professional time and professional learning that is really excellent so that they can continue to grow over their over their life Man, I'm a very different teacher than I was 30 years ago when I started. And thank goodness, you know, first of all, I think I'm better. I hope I'm better. Uh, but I also use different techniques. I didn't learn those in my teacher preparation program. That was 30 years ago. I'm learning things now that I hope are going to be useful for the next 10 or 20 years. I need to learn that some, somehow in some way. So how do we create the conditions where teachers are either in their schools or, again, during holidays or between school years, they're, getting, um, they're learning new information and, and becoming more competent at what they do? Interesting. And if we then move on to our students, mm -hmm. so what shall we do to improve the mental health environment for our students? Great. Well, you know, here's there's some there's some really scary statistics when we look at kids who are battling with mental health issues. Um, too many of them uh, have a mental health issue, but are not being um, treated for that mental health issue. And uh, that's that's really uh, I think again I think I'd start with uh, we need to have a better recognition, understanding, and recognition of uh, the mental health lives of our kids, and be aware that. Um, uh, some of them are coming to school having had traumatic experiences as young children that are still echoing on, with their lives today. Um, one of the greatest studies that's been done in the last 30 or 40 years here in the United States uh, is the Adverse Childhood Experiences study that really looked at childhood, young childhood experiences. Uh, this was a study that was done with 17,000 uh, adults in California, uh, where they uh, had them do a, they got a free physical from their health maintenance organization, and then they filled out a survey. And as part of that process, they looked at, they asked them t 10 questions related to what they identify as these adverse child experiences. Uh, were your, did your parents get divorced when you were a kid? Were you a child of abuse? Was there drug and alcohols in your household? Um, they, they looked at uh, these 10 different areas, and then they looked at the health, the physical health 
of those people. And they've now tracked this. This is from the Centers for Disease Control uh, in the United States. They've been tracking them for years and years and years. Uh, and they've found that the increase, uh, that the, depending on how many of these ACEs, these adverse childhood experiences you had, um, first of all, uh, 65, 70% of the respondents had at least one score of ACE. They had one ACE score. So there was w one thing in their life that had, was an adverse childhood experience. But 30% uh, had four or more. And these were white, middle-class Californians who were part of an excellent health maintenance organization. And so you can imagine, we go to different contexts, how those numbers might change, right? And, and what they found is that if you had four or more ACE scores, there was uh, just monumental uh, possibilities that you were going to have a major health problem later on in life, whether that was heart disease, um, hypertension, uh, cancer, uh, certainly mental health issues, big, 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 big. So understanding that some of our kids are walking in the door having had kind of a, a traumatic experience. And this is across the board, whether you're talking urban, rural, suburban, kids are having those experiences in your classroom. So we have to create what we're calling trauma-informed classrooms or trauma-informed practices that will support kids who are having this kind of ex uh, background. Then we need to take a look at the experience that they're having in their lives right now. So are they themselves diagnosed or non not diagnosed but but exhibiting mental health problems? Are they depressed? Uh, do they have excessive amounts of stress, anxiety, and trauma in their lives now? And again, context, context might change that, but every kid in every context uh, is dealing with the normal stresses and anxiousness of life uh, and the normal trauma. Some of them are, are experiencing more of that. And we know that each individual person is resilient in different ways. So some kids might be very resilient to those things, but other kids are not. So again, a recognition of that, an understanding of that. And then we need to think about how are we creating school systems that support kids? How are we creating classrooms and hallways and cafeterias and bus rides and after school activities that recognize and support the various mental health issues that our kids are facing. Is, is there a specific time where we shall kind of uh, set in with with large amount of kind of uh, grown up hours? Is it kind of when they are when they are, are in preschool or is it kind of in teenage years or, or do you have any knowledge about that? So it's, it's really interesting research coming out of both Northwestern uh, and uh, Harvard uh, and Yale. We've got some great institutions that are really thinking about this. Um, some of the research coming out of, of Harvard's uh, Center on Childhood Development ha is beginning to show that when, when people experience toxic stress, Let's just talk about toxic stress. This is stress that is above and beyond normal daily life, stress that is that affects us in a, in a physical and mental way. And when that happens over a two-week period, on and on and on and on, that's toxic stress. They've actually shown now, this is very recent research, that not only does this have an impact on the brain, meaning our neural pathways actually end up being changed as a result of this toxic stress. We now can show that it is changing the DNA of an individual who is undergoing toxic stress. So on the cellular level, stress can begin to change who we are, which is just 
fascinating to me. I mean, this is a, a, a huge physiological change that's occurring in this. And it begins to explain that study I mentioned earlier, why someone who maybe had these traumatic experiences might end up with physical health problems later on. There's been a DNA change that's occurred. Uh, and I'm just blown away by this research. So what that means is that this is birth through uh, end of life. This is, this is a, this, when we talk about the nature-nurture debate, yes, nature is certainly there, but we know now that nurture has a, maybe a bigger impact than nature because uh, nature is sort of built in from the beginning. Nurture happens throughout your entire life. Um, what I'm interested in, I was actually asking this question yesterday of one of my colleagues, has there been now any study yet done to show that the opposite is true? Can we reverse maybe the damage that's happened to our DNA because of a toxic experience that we've had or, or life that we've led up to that point? Does positivity, and we look at the positive psychologists that are working today and doing Marty Seligman and some of these other great positive uh, psychologists uh, who have said for years that they, they have some evidence that positivity has this very good effect on people's moods and experiences, can we also now prove that it actually might impact their DNA and either prevent or, or create resilience for us or even undo damage that's been done. So this is, a, I mean, we're talking cutting edge. This is the next 10 years. I'm really excited to see where this goes. But it, but it means that early childhood educators, parents, early childhood educators, elementary educators, middle school, high school, college, you know, from the very youngest age all the way through need to be aware of the impact that all this can have on a kid. And, and, uh, and we need to take that seriously. So it's really all ages. I mean, certainly for me, looking at young children, I believe that uh, let's start them off on a, on a good, on a, in a good place, right? Why start them off in a negative, in a toxic environment or in a, in a, in a traumatic environment? The more we can do, and there's been evidence that shows certainly that, that kids who have been in a uh, more positive environment, less traumatic environment, come to school with some skills that other kids don't have. Um, they, they, they advance through school better or more easily uh, than other kids. Um, so, right, I mean, this is why we continue to look at, um, you know, should we have mandatory early childhood in the United States, which we don't have right now across the board. Uh, we begin with kindergarten, and even kindergarten is sometimes part-time and not full-time. So, you know, we want to think more about neonatal and postnatal kind of care through uh, when we, until we get them into public schools, and then what are we doing from public schools from there on. So I think it's very important that we start young, but it's, I'm, it's also important to note that this has to be work that we do throughout. Yeah, and actually now, Tim, the time has almost uh, gone. <laughs> and if maybe some of my listeners want to uh, find more about you and the work you're doing, is there a place on the Internet where they can search? Sure, absolutely. So uh, my email is t-d-o-h-r-e-r at northwestern.edu. You can also just go to the Northwestern University website and search for Tim Dorr and you'll find me. Uh, I um, also have a uh, Twitter feed at 
Timdor, T-I-M-D-O-H-R-E-R, that you can find me on Twitter that way. And uh, on our website here, when you come to the Master of Science and Education website, we have a great area where we do some blogging uh, called Teaching and Learning, which you'll find all kinds of posts that I've done and more writing that I need to do. I've got a lot of work I need to do, but uh, there's lots of ways to, uh, to get in contact with me. And I'm always happy to answer questions if anyone wants to email me. That was the interview with a researcher in the leadership area. This podcast has come to an end. I would like to invite you to join our group on Facebook. If you just type in the search field on Facebook, Research in Leadership in Schools, Early Childhood Settings and Social Care Settings, you will find the group. In the group, there are announcements of new episodes, and we are also able to discuss some issues being brought up in the episodes. This podcast has been running for a long time now, and due to technical reasons, all of the episodes are not available on all podcast platforms, such as Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and so on. But in our group on Facebook, you can find the complete list of all the episodes that have been delivered. So please join us on Facebook. I hope to see you there. Bye bye.